Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. Hey, uh, if it's your first time here, thank you for joining us. My name is Scott Lackey. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are so thrilled that you decided to spend time here with us today. If you're watching online with us, thank you for tuning in as well. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can stay in touch with everything that's going on. And uh, it's going to be a, a fun one this week. We are in our last week of our series, The Father. This has been a four-week series. It's been a little bit deeper than some of our other series at times as we've covered some difficult topics. So we spent the last two weeks talking about the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament and how to reconcile that and what exactly does all that mean. And the first week we talked about how God accommodates that he will go to the greatest lengths to be in relationship with humanity. And this week we're going to keep it a little bit more relational as we wrap up this series and we discover who God the Father is. And our core texts for this series have been John 10.30 and John 14.9 where Jesus said this. He said, I and the Father are one. And in John 14, 9, he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. This is really important for us to kind of try to grasp and understand because if Jesus is one with the Father, and Jesus also, at one point in Matthew chapter 6, when he's teaching us to pray, teaches us to call God Father, then it's important for us to try to discover and find who God the Father is. But sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect there's a bit of a distance. Yeah, we know who Jesus is, but this God the Father character in the Old Testament, he seems really complicated. We can't figure it out. But God the Father, as we saw very clearly last week, is actually one with the Son. God and the Son are one. And there's also the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do a series on him as well. And I can't wait for all of that. But today we're going to wrap up the Father. And what we're going to be talking about this week is the name of God. The name of God. And the inspiration for this message came from a book I read actually almost two years ago called God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. And no, we're not going to go to the I Am passages. We're going to go to that sometime in the future. But today for us to see the name of God, who God is on a relational level, what we can call God, we're actually going to go to Exodus chapter 34. Now, what exactly is happening in Exodus 34? Well, Moses is leading the the Israelites. He's led them out of slavery in Egypt. And previously, right before Exodus 34, Moses had come down, he had met with God, and he had these tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them. And God said, hey, use these to guide and lead the people. And Moses comes down, and the people are worshiping a golden calf. Moses is not happy. Oh my gosh, they're doing this. And so he takes these stone tablets, and he breaks them. He busts them because he's so upset. So then we hear a little bit from God, and then Moses goes to have another conversation with God. And as I was thinking through this, it's almost like, imagine if you were in school, and you did something wrong, and you decided to just go turn yourself into the principal's office. Like, hey, you know, um, yeah, I know you put me over this group of people, but uh, uh, they were worshiping a golden calf, and then I know you gave me these things, but I actually took them and busted them and broke them because I was so upset. Like, it's a little bit of an intimidating concept to think about that Moses is going to talk with God and say, hey, yeah, the people that I was leading, uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, they, they didn't get the whole picture, and so they decided to worship a golden calf, and then I took these things that you gave me, and I completely busted them. I mean, how do you think God would respond in a moment like that? How do you think maybe an authority figure in your life would respond in a moment like that? What we see from God's response here is very telling about who God is. 
Because Moses goes to have this conversation with God and look at what happens in Exodus chapter 34. It said, the Lord descended in the cloud. Now that first part there, that's consistent with what we learned in week one about how God accommodates. God will always descend. God will always come to meet people where they are at. This is almost like a picture of what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 15, when the father comes running after the son, that the, fa- that the father will descend. He comes to meet with Moses in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The reason that we're calling this the name of God is because this is actually the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. Over and over and over again. Now you start reading your Old and New Testament, you'll see this over and over and over again, this declaration about who God is. So God wants to make something abundantly clear, that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth for thousands and he forgives transgression, iniquity, and sin. This is who he is, and you will see this over and over and over again now as you start to read the scriptures. This is declared time and time again. And so we are calling this the name of God because this is what God clearly wants us to know about who he is. So let's let's talk about this first part, compassionate and gracious. He first says, hey, I am compassionate and gracious. These are the first two things, if you can put that up on the screen for people who are taking notes. He lets everyone know that he is compassionate and gracious. Now, this is kind of a weird way for somebody to introduce themselves, specifically from the mindset that we have today. I don't know about you, but when I introduce myself to somebody, I don't go based off of characteristics of what I think I'm like. I introduce myself typically based off of who I am in relation to another person or in regards to a profession that I, you know, I will say, hey, you know, yeah, yeah, my name's Scott. I'm, yeah, uh, Kim is my wife, or I'm the husband of Kim. That might be a way in which I introduce myself. I might say, hey, I'm Scott. Yes, I'm a pastor. Please don't hate me. Like, you know, whenever I'm on, like with a stranger on a plane or something, and they, you know, sometimes you sit next to those people who are talkers. I'm usually the one, like, put my headphones in and watch Netflix. But some people like to talk to strangers. And so they'll start talking, like, what do you do? And I'm always, like, really nervous to say I'm a pastor because you just don't know where that's going to go. You don't know what's going to happen after that. You don't know. Usually it's gone well for me, thankfully, but you just don't know how it's going to go. And so, but that's usually, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Kim's husband or I'm a pastor. I wouldn't go up to somebody and say, hey, my name's Scott. I'm compassionate and gracious. You would probably think there's something wrong with you or there's, there's an arrogance issue there or there's a pride issue there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm compassionate and gracious. Just wanted to let you know that about me. Like you'd, you'd probably, there's something a little bit, there's something going on here. But this is the first thing that God lets Moses know. He says, I'm, I'm compassionate and gracious. And in this time period, the first two things that somebody would say about themselves was telling. It was meaningful. It meant a lot. And so that word for compassion in the Hebrew is actually used in other places in the Old Testament to actually describe a mother's womb. So in some of the reading that I was doing for this this, uh, series and for this particular message gave the indication that what God is actually saying here is that God's love for his people, his compassion for his people is like a mother's love for his children or for her children. Just as a mother will not abandon her children, God will not abandon his children. Just as a mother has compassion for her children, God has that same type of loving compassion for his children. And it says that he is gracious. 
He is full of grace. He gives grace. And his grace, is, it's, it's amazing. He doesn't give grace to us based off of our victories, and he doesn't hold grace back from us based off of our failures. You can, that's, that's one of the things we have. God doesn't give grace based on your victories and he will not hold back grace based on your failures. God will not look at something great you did and say, oh, here's some more grace for you. And he won't look at something horrible you did and say, oh, I'm holding back grace. No, he himself is gracious and he always has more grace to give. And in his grace, we will experience more of his compassion, more of his care. It's almost as if this passage is alluding to what Paul would eventually write in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works so that no one may boast. It is in his free gift of grace that he has given us that we are saved, that we are rescued. And in that saving and in that rescuing, we experience his compassion. We experience his care. The Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious. Secondly, we see he says that he is slow to anger. And he ends the passage with, by no means leaving the guilty unpunished. So those, I see those two as kind of going together. Now this, this concept of God having any type of anger or being slow to anger, this can start to bring up some tensions as well, because some, for some of us, including myself at times growing up, it felt as if the version you were given of God was a much more angry God than loving. Or it felt as if, yeah, God loves me, but it's being his love is constraining his anger and he's about to burst. And he could get angry with you at any second. And if you tell a lie, your name just might be out of the book of life. You just don't know. You better be careful because he's watching. It felt like God, it felt like, yeah, God would say, but his anger almost felt contradictory to his love or it felt as if his anger had more power than his love with some of the versions of God that we were given. So as soon as we hear this idea that God could possibly be angry, it, it might bring some stress to some people. Like, what exactly does that mean? Because it, I, I'm just walking on eggshells around God all the time. And really, it wasn't God who was angry at you. It was people who were using that form of anger to kind of let you, hey, do what I want you to do. Because notice this passage says that he is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. So yes, anger is an attribute of God. It's a characteristic of of God, and there are different ways in which that anger is played out, but anger is not his first choice. Anger, God is not sitting by the angry button ready to just tap it and release all of his anger on you at once. It's almost, some people, almost like they enjoyed the idea that God was angry. It was like, well, you know, I'm right because I'm good with Jesus, but I can't wait for him to pour out his anger on those people that I don't like. They wouldn't never say it that way, but it's almost like what you felt like when you were around them. Like, oh my goodness, you guys, you're just ready for it. And, but that's, that's not how the anger of God works. He is slow to anger. And also keep this in mind. Romans 8.1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. So therefore, there, there's a degree into which we have been spared of that. But I would say that there are, generally speaking, two different types of anger that we see from God. And the first one is a direct anger. This is when evil is happening in the world. And so God miraculously intervenes directly to stop evil. Evil is happening and God miraculously jumps in. He intervenes to stop evil. And here's the thing with this too. This is not typically like, oh, God brings a lightning bolt to stop evil. No, it's typically God raises up people within his church or people who are following him and says, hey, did you notice that problem that's going on? And then he leads his church by the power of his Holy Spirit to go and stop evil. 
to go and do something about it, to be the light of the world that we were called to be and directly do something about it. There's a direct anger where God jumps in and he will say, I'm going to miraculously do something about this. Now, there, I know there are some people who still probably in their hearts and minds are wrestling with the idea that God could possibly ever get angry. And so some people are like, oh no, God could never possibly be angry. And I would say that that's a bit of an extreme position. And here's why. I think it's an extreme position to say that God could never possibly be angry or frustrated about anything. So let me give you some. So if, if you're on the extreme and say God could never possibly be angry, I'm going to give you some, some extreme examples of things that humans do to one another that I think probably make, or I know, make God angry. I'm pretty confident make God, if he exists, these things are going to make him angry. Things like genocide, things like hate and oppression of people groups, things like racism, things like rape, things like child prostitution, I imagine those things make God angry. Especially when in the way of Jesus, he's offered us a way of life that is void of all of those things. He's offered us a way of life where we don't have to choose to live in those things, where we, we can choose a better way, a way that is full of love and grace and hope and dignity for other humans. And so there are definitely things that happen because even we as humans, when those things happen, we think, that's not supposed to be that way. That's not how things are supposed to be. And there's almost a type of what some would maybe even call a righteous anger that burns within us. So to say that, oh, he could never possibly be angry, I think that's a bit of an extreme position. So there's the direct anger where he'll directly get involved. And then there's, and this is what I actually think we see most of throughout the scriptures and even in our own lives, this form of what I would call God's passive anger, his passive anger. This is when God in his love has done all that he can do so he removes his presence. God in his love has done all that he can do, whether for this individual or this group, he's done everything that he can do, everything possible. And then it's, it's, it's he, the, 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 the heart of that human or, or group has become so hard and so hardened to God. He says, I've, I've done what I can do. And he, he does what we call turning people over, turning people over to their sin, turning people over to their own decisions. This is uh, like what C.S. Lewis described, where God looks at some people and, and where, well, some people look at God and they say to him, thy will be done. And some people, God in his passive anger will look at them and say, thy will be done. In his love, he's done all that he can do. And then he says, you know what? It's almost as if my love has become, uh, in a sense, counterproductive here. So he says, thy will be done. Uh, Paul describes this in Romans chapter 1 as a giving over. Romans 1.24, he said, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Romans 1.26 says, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Romans 1.28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. This is what God will do. He's done everything that he could. He's given, he's given love, grace, mercy, time and time again. And it says, Paul would later say in Romans 6, Should I keep on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. But there are some people like, Oh, I got grace, I got grace. And they almost become compliant in this. And so eventually God will give them over. Now, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, Oh my goodness, am I one of those people that God has given over? No. He has you here this morning so that you can hear that there's love and forgiveness and grace available to you. He's calling you forward into the life that he has for you. But there are some situations where God's like, I, I've done what I can do. And so in his passive anger, he will give people over. Uh, Dr. Greg Boyd describes it this way. He says, rather than helping people to turn from their rebellion, it, God's grace and mercy is enabling them to become further solidified in their rebellion. 
And when this point is reached, God has no choice but to withdraw his protection and turn people over to experience the destructive consequences of their choices in hopes that their suffering will teach them what God's mercy cannot. Hopefully, maybe through suffering, they will eventually see the need for God in their lives that they couldn't see because of it just, it just wasn't working. And they said to God, God said to them, thy will be done. Thy will be done. But just remember this with anger, with God's anger. The first thing he lets us know about it is that he's slow to anger. We need to rid ourselves of these images that God is excited to be angry or God just can't wait to release anger. No, he is slow. It's not his first option. He is slow to anger. Slow. Slow. There we go. Slow. I'm glad that you could learn this at a young age before I was able to learn this at a young age. So, because at a young age, I thought he was fast anger. So good. I'm glad this is what we're doing. New story, raising up the next generation. So he's slow to anger. Next, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. This is who he is. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth, and he keeps loving kindness for thousands. Some translations, that word loving kindness is unfailing love. And we know that he truly has an unfailing love because not even death itself could stop the love of the resurrection from bursting forth. It's an unfailing love. And he is truth. Now, some people would take truth and say, oh, that means that he tells me what is true. And there's a form of that that is true as well. But actually, if we were to expand that out a little bit, what he's, what's actually being said here is that he is true, which means he is consistent. He is reliable. He is never changing. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the fullness of what it means to be integrity. He is consistent. He is true. He is reliable. And so therefore, in his truth of who he is, in his very essence, we can know that his unfailing loving kindness is true and consistent and reliable. And this loving kindness, it's not just for a select few, but it's for thousands. It is for all. He is abounding in loving kindness. This is why earlier on we see when God goes to meet with Abraham, he says this to him in Genesis chapter 12, and in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And then through the line of Abraham, we see the Messiah come who is Jesus Christ. And what happens through Christ? All of the nations of the earth, all people can now be blessed and experience life in Christ because of this promise that came from a true, consistent, reliable, good father. He's true. He's true. And his loving kindness exists for all, for thousands. And it's a loving kindness that exists today for you and for me, for all of us. This is why Jesus teaches us that he's a good father. This is why Jesus teaches us this in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when this one asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a snake? Will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? He is a good Father who desires to align our hearts with his and give us then out of the desires of our heart that which is good. He is good, he is good, he is good. And he's full of loving kindness and true and consistent. So that same father that Jesus spoke of is the same father that we can be connected to today and call father. But now for some of you, whether you're here with us in person or whether you're watching online, the idea of good and father 
doesn't really go together. Seems like a contradictory statement. Because what you knew of your earthly father or didn't know doesn't really seem like a good father. Maybe your father abandoned you at a young age. Maybe your father was neglectful and never really paid much attention to you. Maybe your father, everything looked good on the outside and was well-respected by his co-workers and and colleagues, but then at home was just kind of self-consumed and never really pursued a relationship with you. Maybe there was abuse involved. And for many people that I've talked over the short period of time that I've done ministry, time and time again, I've talked with people who had some type of father issue. So maybe for you, the concept of good and father doesn't really seem to be connecting right now. And if that's you, that's your story. I want to reference to you this morning the story of King David. See, a lot of times this kind of gets breezed over in the life of David. But I actually believe that David had some father tensions as well. Because when you get to 1 Samuel, and Samuel the prophet is going to choose the next king of Israel from the sons of Jesse, Jesse goes through all of his kids. And Samuel's like, "None none of these are the next king. And Samuel has to say to Jesse, do you have any other sons? Jesse's like, oh, yeah, there's David out in the field doing what nobody else wants to do. There's David. Like, Jesse, did you forget about your other son? Jesse, why is he out in the field when everybody else is getting looked at to potentially be a king one day? What's going on here? And then when David goes to bring food to his brothers with the whole Goliath thing, his brothers show him such disrespect that you maybe wonder, was this how he was treated at home? And then even some of the own tensions David begins to have as a father, you begin to wonder, is he trying to just figure this whole thing out? Because when Samuel shows up, he's like, oh yeah, David, I don't even, you know, I forgot about him. He's out in the field. What is going on here? David probably experienced some forms of neglect, some forms of not feeling accepted by his father. His father didn't think, oh, there's no way David could be the one who's going to be chosen by the prophet, so I'm just not even going to bring him out. And we see this reflected in a psalm from David. In Psalm 27, David writes this in Psalm 27.10, For my father and mother, they've done what? They have forsaken me. They have neglected me. They have forgotten me. My father and mother have forsaken me. But what will the Lord do? The Lord will take me up. Some translations say the Lord will take me in. And some of you today, that's all you simply need to hear. Maybe you've had this tension. You feel like, I don't know what it means to have a father. You have a good heavenly father. And maybe you feel like your father and mother have forsaken you, but guess what? The Lord will take you up. The Lord will take you in. And he is a good father filled with loving kindness. Amen. It's an unlimited love. It's an unfailing love. It's an uncontainable love. It's an uncontrollable love. And it is completely unfailing. And he wants you to know today that he loves you and you can call on him. And he is a good father who desires to give you good gifts and he will care for you. Amen. So, brings us to our last point. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin? Some of your translations say forgiving, just as in his very essence, he is forgiveness. That's who he is. He is forgiving. He forgives. He can't help but to forgive. Some of us got the image that he couldn't help but to be angry. No, the reality is that he can't help but to forgive. He cannot help but to forgive. It is who he is. He is forgiving. And his forgiveness, his forgiveness is free. 
and it will begin to set you free. But also going back to some of the images that some of us had growing up, sometimes, or maybe the image you were given in church or a different religious place or whatever, it's as if you feel nervous to go to God for forgiveness. Because you have this idea of, yeah, God calls me his child, but he begrudgingly calls me his child. Oh yeah, God rescued me and adopted me into his family, but not because he wanted to, just because he had to. Or some, some of the thoughts I used to have was like, man, I've done so much bad and I've just, you know, I've went so far, God could never possibly forgive me. Yeah, he can forgive other people, but he couldn't forgive someone like me because of, you know, what I've done, which you know my life really wasn't that crazy to be honest with you. But anyways, like, I would, but I would get these such thoughts of shame and guilt. I lived a pretty sheltered life, but I would get the shame and guilt because of the picture of God that, that I had in my mind that he could, oh, he could never possibly forgive someone like me. Oh, you know what? He, he, his arms are crossed. And for some reason, I knew the story of Luke 15 where the father came running to the son, rebellious son with arms wide open. But for some reason, I didn't think that that was for me. I just thought that was for other people. Or I thought, oh, because I know better, you know, he could never possibly forgive me. And I think what the enemy has done is he's convinced so many of us to hold on to secret sins and not ever say anything about them. And because of that, you now live under control of that sin. It now actually dictates many of your decisions. It dictates how you feel about yourself. It dictates how you feel about God because your view of God is that he could never possibly forgive you. Your view of God is that maybe he could forgive me, but he doesn't want to forgive me. Your view of God is that if you were to go to him and say, hey, I broke the tablets and your people are worshiping a golden calf, is that he would just get angry at you and scream at you and make you feel worse. But his forgiveness actually isn't meant to to just push you down. His forgiveness is meant to build you up. And so, so many of us, you're, you're holding on to this, you're holding on to this secret sin that you've been carrying and it's been having control over you and it's been dictating decisions you make. It's been dictating your, your proximity to God. And I don't know what it is, but maybe it's something like a, maybe it's like a closeted alcoholism that you've been dealing with. There's some type of closeted addiction, whether that be to, to, to porn or drugs or whatever. And you're just like, I, I can't, I, you know, I, I just can't confess it. I can't say it because God could never forgive me for that. Or maybe there's just a, a everyone thinks that you're like the picture perfect family, but you've been treating yourself spouse and your kids absolutely horribly. And you're just like, I just can't confess it though. I can't do that. Or, or, or maybe it's just, you know, maybe you've been stealing or something. I don't know. Maybe you've been stealing money. Maybe you've been stealing time. Maybe you haven't been a person of integrity and you know that, but I just don't know. Maybe you've been filled with gossip. Maybe it's jealousy. We all have these sins that, that kind of attack us. And we have these sins that we get stuck in. We have these cycles that we get stuck in. And then we start to convince ourselves, I'm no better than these sins. I'm no better than this decision because we've never thought, hey, I can confess this and God will forgive me, not so that I can stay back here, but so he can bring me into what he has for me. But his forgiveness is free and his forgiveness will begin to set you free. Maybe it's a narcissism where you've built up this shield where, hey, I I don't ever make any mistakes, but you know you're making mistakes all the time, but now you've become such a perfectionist on the outside, you're afraid to admit that you could possibly do something wrong. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's complaining. Complaining. And you know, I mean, I've been really lazy. I've been complaining a lot lately, but it's easier to just hide back here and just point the finger at all these other people who are doing things wrong. And instead of saying, hey, I need to confess this and he's not going to be angry at me. He's going to restore me. That's what his forgiveness is there for. His forgiveness is not there so that he can be angry and make you feel worse about yourself. His forgiveness is there to build you up. 
I got an old verse for you. This is an oldie but a goodie. 1 John, 8, 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we say, oh, I've never done anything wrong. I'm just fine. Okay, no, no. Okay, that's, that's being deceptive. We all, like, come on. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... There's a power in confessing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to do what? To forgive us our sins. And then say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to, you know, kind of forgive us, but still hold it against us. doesn't say that. doesn't say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to make us feel really bad about it and tell us what a fool we are for doing that, even though we knew better. doesn't say that. It doesn't say if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to just continue to push us away and say, you are such a fool. Nope. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not some of it, but all of it. He will cleanse us. And so when we forgive, when we ask for forgiveness, when we confess this has been holding me back. This is a decision I've been making. God, I'm confessing this to you. It's actually saying, God, I want to be closer to you. And in his forgiveness, he will cleanse you. He will restore you. He will build you up. In fact, I would say it this way. God's forgiveness is his way of letting you know that he will not stop fighting for you. God's forgiveness is his way of letting you know that he has not stopped fighting for you and he will not stop fighting for you. So don't allow that secret sin to continue to have control over you. Say, today, I'm done with it. I'm confessing to you, God, that this has had a stronghold over me. And then what you do is that no longer has control over you. You are now giving control to him. He will cleanse you and restore you, and he will continue to fight for you. In his compassion, in his grace, in his unfailing love, he will not stop fighting for you. So who is God? What is the name of God? God the Father is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's who God is. That's the name of God. And so he is a good father that you can call to, and he will always desire and work to restore you. Here's one more cool thing. Who God is, is who you can become. No, I'm not saying that you can become God. No. But who God is, is who you can become. And the essence of when you get to know the one who is loving kindness, he will begin to shape your heart into a heart of loving kindness. When you know the one who is truth, he will shape you into a person of truth who is consistent and reliable. When you, be, when you know the one who is forgiving, you will then begin to become a person who forgives. When you know the one who is compassionate and gracious, you will become a person of compassion and grace. I don't think it's any coincidence that these characteristics of who God is are very similar to the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because when you know the one who is all of those things, he will begin to shape that within you, and that's who you will become. Who God is, is who we can become in him. And so today, run to the one who is forgiveness, and let him restore you and build you into who it is that he's designed you to be.